This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Bruce Rankin, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Carl Watson, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 374 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Max Gladstone. He's the author of the craft sequence of fantasy novels from Tor, and he also co-wrote Bookburners and The Witch Who Came In from the Cold for Serial Box. His short fiction appears in the Wildcards anthologies and on Tor.com, and his novel This Is How You Lose the Time War, which he wrote with Amal El-Motar, is out now. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new space opera novel, Empress of Forever. And now here's our interview with Max Gladstone. All right, so we're here with Max Gladstone. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Okay, and so your new novel is called Empress of Forever. So how did this book come about? Well, the book came about uh, in... It's kind of complicated. I had a number of different themes that were going into this one. Some stories that I had uh, loved since childhood that I wanted to figure out a way to play pay proper homage to. Um, and also after six books of writing my craft sequence novels, I was really excited to move in a totally different direction. I wanted something that didn't feel like um, I'd done it before. And so I was, I spent a long afternoon wandering around Somerville, um, brainstorming different concepts of, for the next book. And Empress sort of took shape in my head. I, I had some notions of making something that felt sort of grandstanding and vast and anime-like. Um, I had my childhood love of Journey to the West, which I wanted to reference. And I also felt like it would be fun to follow the adventures of a sort of near future science fiction protagonist who'd been pulled far out of her context and away from anything she understood into a far future galaxy and sort of left starting from jump again, having to kind of rebuild her life. I mean, was there any uh, trepidation? I mean, every, I think every book you had written prior was all part of the craft sequence, which are these sort of do you describe them as uh, secondary worlds, epic fantasy or urban fantasy or something like that. Yeah, I talk about them as being post-industrial fantasy as much as anything else. They're definitely secondary world fantasy. They're set in urban environments, so they get called urban fantasies a little bit. But the craft sequence are the story of people in a fantasy world that's about our level of technological development. So all of the fantasy stuff happens, wizard battles and those sorts of things. But they're taking place between you know wizards who have day jobs, uh, basically working as bankruptcy lawyers or necromancers, which is more or less the same thing anyway. <laughs> so it's obviously it's a big change, I, I would imagine, to go from that to this book, which, as you said, is space opera. So was there any trepidation? Were you nervous at all that about making a change or whether you could pull it off? I was and wasn't. I was interested to see how people who knew and loved my work from the craft sequence would respond to a new project. But... It was more excitement than anything else. When you start exploring one fictional universe, you create a kind of rhetoric and a pace for that fictional universe. Characters behave in a certain way. They have certain options that are available to them. And the deeper that you get into a series that's built that way, on the one hand, the more dramatic possibilities open up for you because you've established certain things to be true about the universe. But on the other hand, there's that rush of creation that you no longer have as easy access to as you did back when you were writing the first book or the second. So I was really enthusiastic to dive in. Well, right. So let's start. You, you, you mentioned that the book starts out in our present or maybe a little bit in the near future. Um, and the protagonist is Vivian Liao who the book Jacket describes as a wildly successful innovator to rival Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. Just tell us a little bit more about her. Yeah, so this is about 20 years in a slightly darker, slightly climate-ravaged future, a world that's 
where the walls feel like they're closing in a little bit, or at least that's how Viv feels uh, it is when we first meet her. This is a woman who is composed of a will and forward motion. She's never let herself fail at anything. She's always been battering forward against the tide. Uh, and by the time we meet her, she's built an international empire, basically. She's, uh, she's one of these billionaires that you read about in the newspaper, but she's found some enemies in the current administration, some people who are looking to basically black bag her or cart her off to some, um, gulag somewhere and she feels like she has to stop them and incidentally possibly conquer the world in the process and this is the kind of person she is let me ask you about that because um she's on the outs with the government you say because she's done all these sort of philanthropic sounding things a free insurance program free housing for her workers uh ending social media manipulation engines and anonymizing user data talk about that because I feel like uh that's very different from how we think of you know the actual tech billionaires we have who don't seem to care much about those sorts of things? Well, everybody um, cares about what's in their best interest to care. So I think Viv really despises the people who have used many of those same levers to gain control over the uh, American political sphere in the in her own time. And she's been fighting back in uh, basically using every tool that's available to her. And that's what's finally attracted the wrong sort of attention. I mean, do you follow the tech industry or do you have any experience with it or how, how, just sort of what did you draw on to create this character? I have a lot of friends who are in the tech industry um, in various capacities. And I was an industry analyst for a while, sort of touching on technology. I've never been a deep Silicon Valley person myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I heard you say that you thought it was it was interesting because, um, you know, previous generations of science fiction authors like Robert Heinlein have written about these sort of tech entrepreneur inventor characters who go to the moon and private ships and things like that. And it seems like uh, the current generation of billionaires like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are consciously modeling themselves after those fictional characters and sort of tapping into that mythology. Yeah. I mean, that's very much my sense. You have people who are trying to fictionalize themselves, which I think is really fascinating. And that's one of the things that Empress of Forever keeps turning back around, the sort of stories we tell about our own identity, where those stories came from, and to the extent that we're all bound by those stories. It's something that I find really fascinating about uh, Musk specifically, that you know this is a man whose whole identity seems to be a public identity anyway, seems to be assembled from quotes from, you know, I could give a list of 15, 20 science fiction novels. It's it's fascinating to live in a moment where people who, or a certain sort of person anyway, who has power, connections, credentials, um, is trying to embody characters that uh, were sort of understood to be fictional or, or you know, possibilities at the very least um, in the 60s and 70s. Well, right. And when, when I was growing up, and I think when you were growing up, there was just a lot of, um, you know, science fiction wasn't taken so seriously uh, always. And at least it's sort of, I mean, I have mixed feelings about some of the things, but overall, I think it's gratifying to me that we're in a situation now where people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos feel that it benefits them to tap into the the, the, the literature of science fiction or that, that you know, that mythology, that it's actually uh, has, has gained enough cultural uh, cachet that it's even worth doing that. Yeah, that's an interesting way to talk about it uh, in terms of cultural cachet. You know, what are they getting by putting these masks on or by interacting with the world in this way? I think there's even a kind of nostalgia that that sort of presentation embodies. Um, we're in a very complicated time right now, politically, environmentally, financially. Um, the world feels very tight and it's hard to see what directions we can move. And in that situation, it's really compelling to put on the persona of the boundless innovator, the sort of the sky isn't even the limit character that Heinlein loved to write about. I mean, I was listening to a um, an interview with Peter Thiel, who's another one of these sort of science fiction fan billionaire types. And he was saying that 
it's actually, you know, you need a story to recruit the best people, you know, that it's easy to recruit the first 10 or 20 people for your startup because they're going to get stock options and stuff like that. But then the mm -hmm. question is, how do you uh, recruit the 25th really qualified or excellent top ranked candidate uh, for your startup and that you have to have a story and that science fiction, you know, mythology can kind of provide that story uh, in, in Musk's case and for some of these other things. I like that. The story has a kind of gravity and it encourages people to, it draws people to it. If someone thinks that they're one of the knights of the round table, or if they think they're literally on the Starship Enterprise, or they're trying to build the Starship Enterprise, uh, there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of cohesion. Yeah. Did you see that uh, your book was recommended by Forbes on their Here's What Europe's Top Tech Investors Are Reading This Summer list? I did see that. I didn't have a lot of time to dig deep into the article, but that really uh, amused me. So you think maybe there will be some people in the future who were inspired by to be the next Vivian Liao? Hey, if that if it works out that way, I think it'd be great, though uh, not without its own challenges. Yeah. Okay, so we said that sort that... of reshapes the world to make herself, you know. Yeah. Okay, so we said that Vivian finds herself transported thousands of years into the future. Um, and the world building is just, uh, is really spectacular. Um, you. so you've got the, uh, the pride, the mirror faith, the cloud, the bleed and the empress. Could you just, uh, quickly sort of sketch out what sort of future Viv finds herself in? Sure. It's a sort of post-human, post-apocalyptic in, in large measure. I really wanted an all stops pulled out kind of wild, almost Mobius-like far future, Mobius and Hodorowsky, that, that sort of sense that there's always going to be something bigger and weirder around the next corner, that the world's always going to have more wonder and terror in it than you could possibly expect, given uh, what you've seen so far. And so the galaxy that Viv is waking up in after her... Um, well, okay, so Viv decides uh, in, in, in our near future that in order to defeat the administration, she's got a great plan. She's going to basically seed an appreciable f fraction of the computers in the world within, uh, with a piece of malware that's going to generate what she thinks is going to be a self-improving artificial intelligence or pseudo-intelligence. So she goes, and that's going to listen to her, which will enable her to crack all of the codes and basically take over. So she goes, she's doing that. In the process of doing that, she's surprised by a glowing green figure who tears her heart out of her chest. And then she wakes up in this strange far future um, in a bubble of green goo, basically orbiting a black hole. So her questions are, you know, one, how did I get here? Two, how do I get home? Because I left some unfinished business back there. And three, what on earth is going on? Rapidly, she figures out that, uh, the future, what she thinks is a future, could be a very distant place that she's woken up in, is um, ruled by a post-human empress who has enormous power. It's a sort of planet-shattering kind of character um, who goes around the galaxy destroying any civilizations that become advanced enough to uh, possibly pose a threat to her, possibly to do something else. So what we do know is that the Empress goes around and sort of breaks civilizations when they're just sort of building their small interstellar empires for the first time. So this has left a whole bunch of shards of cultures and relics of former wars all over the galaxy. So you have... Um, in in uh, one case, you have the mirror faith who are monks, basically, who are dedicated to figuring out how the empress does the things that she does, traveling around the galaxy and finding uh, relics of these destroyed worlds or maybe pieces of technology or tools that the empress herself has used in her uh, crusades and in her conquest, figuring out how they work so that they can understand them and maybe at some point surpass or defeat her. You've got... Uh, renegade tools and weapons that she's uh, deployed in the past, sort of cast off uh, robots and things like that called the Pride, who are trying to um, fight back in their own way, assert their independence, gain, uh, gain phenomenal powers. But they're all kind of picking at the leavings of the Empress in these wars that she's fought. Well, so when talk about the cloud, uh, how that... What, what version of the cloud there is in this uh, far future world? <laughs> well, so I, I was sort of projecting forward this notion of 
um, if you have intensely programmable matter and you have what we think of as post-human upload technology, a sort of notion that people's consciousness could, for at the beginning, be partially embodied in the internet, say, and then you have, uh, over time, more and more of it becomes embodied in, in the internet until some people are talking about leaving behind physical form entirely. Um, if you combine both of these and you do some hand-waving with uh, sort of notions of hyperspace sort of hyperspatial data networks the kind of thing that you would need for faster than light travel anyway um, for most kinds of faster than light travel then you start entering a world that looks a little bit like a sort of where the physical world starts to look more like a projection of a larger informational world than the other way around so in the future that viv's waking up in most people are composed of smart matter and have a projection of their you know consciousness what they'd call their soul into the cloud and they can move around given the appropriate tools by more or less computing themselves through across vast reaches of space without actually crossing uh, the space from point a to point b now viv can't do that because she doesn't have one of these souls she's not composed of the same kind of matter uh, and, you know, there are a lot of weird incidental consequences of this. Like there's actually a kind of afterlife, uh, what we would recognize as the sort of post-singularity promised afterlife, right? Where you uh, die and then you're recreated or maybe continually created inside a computer in some sort of afterlife. Um, and a lot of these, not only am I using this to get the characters around the cosmos, but I'm really interested in the question of, you know, if you can do anything if if power ceases to be if whether you can accomplish something that you want to stops being an obstacle you know what does your life look like you end up being kind of bound by your desires and that's a constant challenge that people in this universe face when they achieve a certain level of attainment um, they can do anything what they want but it's very hard to change what you want to do there's a part in the book where one of the characters uh, says to the Empress, you changed the cloud to something anyone could use, which, but that you would always own, which made me think a lot of, you know, you have these sort of tech monopolies and they control the platforms. And so if, uh, you know, YouTube and Twitter and Facebook don't like what you're saying, they can kind of deplatform you and essentially erase your existence uh, as far as it it matters. Um, was that, am I sort of imagining that parallel or is that something that you... Uh, had in mind when you were writing this? No, that's very conscious. Um, I think my sense of the internet was shaped by, has been shaped by seeing a few different, very clear versions of it. Not as many, of course, as somebody who was even 10 years older than me has seen, but I remember what felt like the early days of the web. You know, there are web rings. Back when search engines seemed really cool and interesting because it was a way to find out what was out there. Otherwise, you were just stuck jumping from hyperlink to hyperlink and trying to sort of prospecting almost. Mm -hmm. What have people done on this thing called the internet? Nobody knew. You'd get books sometimes that would tell you where to like go, where, where to point your gopher um, clients to figure out what was going on out there. And... There was an inaccessibility to that. Um, it was very hard to figure out what was going on. But it also was very free. Um, anyone who had access to the resources necessary to start to like put a computer online could host a website that someone else could find. Uh, and, and then as soon as you started having systems like angel fire or whatever, you, you started getting even people who couldn't set a computer up or set up their own web host were making web pages. And the way you could, if you wanted to download all the source for your web page and move it from one server to another or administer uh, things in your own way, you can build your own code into sites. It was a phenomenally free space. Um, and it's been interesting to see us move from that through a number of intermediaries to a modern point where some huge chunk of all web traffic goes through a handful of sites owned by an even smaller handful of companies um, where, you know, your 
Instagram presence isn't something that you own in the same way that your uh, website was back in the 90s. That strikes me as... Um, it strikes me as strange and it strikes me as concerning. And there's also maybe a tinge of inevitability to it uh, because, you know, if you want to do cool things, you need a lot of smart people to sit there and do cool things. The you know, reality of the 90s Internet is, you know, you go to a lot of these websites and there is that same gif of somebody, mm-hmm. uh, you know, digging out a pit, a sort of roadway caution Um placards under construction, right? Um, or the same six HTML tags that everybody was ripping off of everybody else at the time. So the web now is much more complicated, much more interesting, um, or, but it's also much more controlled. Uh, it's much more top down. And that changes the social possibilities of the medium. I mean, one of the other aspects of the internet as it exists today that it seems to me finds form in your novel is that there's this character gray who's sort of this this gray goo kind of um <laughs> genie or something yeah exactly and um when we first encounter him uh he's sort of run amok and he he defends himself by saying um when people come to me i ask their souls what they want and give it to them i just collect data and it seems like there's a pretty obvious parallel there to uh sort of these youtube algorithms that just you know, just give you what you want. And it has all sorts of, uh, you know, malign influence because people just get sucked down rabbit holes into extremism and things like that. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. I mean, when the algorithm can figure out what you want or what it thinks you want better than you can, you can end up in one of these sort of desire loops, right? Where there's, you're, you always want the next thing that's one step out of reach. Um, and Gray was a great venue for exploring that. Um, you see it not only on YouTube, but, you know, on Facebook too. Like you, uh, the algorithm learns, it all depends on what the algorithm wants, right? If the algorithm wants you to stay on the site, looking at the site, it's going to show you things that keep you there which is a little bit different from showing you something that may say enlighten you or drive you. Um, It's interesting to ask what an algorithm that was trained on. If the desired user outcome was closing the computer and going out and doing something in the world, I don't know how you'd track that. Right. But if, you know, you could have, if, if your algorithm was seeking for, an end state where the user went out to go make somebody else's life better. It'd be a very different algorithm for one that wants you to more or less remain on YouTube or on mm-hmm. Facebook constantly. Right. I mean, in terms of your creative process, what, what came first? Did you, did you say like, I, I think that this, um, you know, these desire loops are interesting. I want a character that embodies that. Or did you sort of imagine this, uh, gray goo character and then say, what could he, what, um, you know, deeper significance could he have in terms of commentary or things like that? It was kind of a zigzag. Um, this book is about desire and identity a lot. So for each one of the characters, I found myself sort of jumping around to uh, ways that they're engaging with questions of desire and identity. And Gray is the one where it comes into the clearest focus. Uh, with a character like that, who's a shapeshifter, who's responsive to uh, who's both a shapeshifter can give you what you want and is also all consuming the way that a kind of gray goo system would be or could be it, the sort of concepts seem to feed back on themselves mm-hmm. i mean like i said i mean there's there's so many things like that in this book that are just such cool kind of space opera inventions uh it's just it's so creative and I, i'm always kind of curious with this sort of stuff a lot of this um this terminology you have like uh you talk about the ablative alloy surrounding its monomolecule hull and computationally dense acausal neutronium where do those sorts of terms come from oh man um so 
some of them are they're they're hodgepodges. They're either neat tech stuff that I picked up when I was um, reading some science book or other. Uh, sometimes they're elaborate references, right? So like the uh, spaceships in Ian M. Banks's culture novels are referred to a couple of times as having monomolecular holes, where you're basically trying to build the entire hole out of one large um, molecule, so that the um, what is it? The electroweak force basically is what's holding them together. I'm probably getting that wrong. It's been a long day. Anyway, well, I, I can't so, help you out there. <laughs> sorry. No. So, so basically you have molecular forces that are uh, establishing cohesion rather than um, the bonds between the, between the molecules. So, um, which is, I think actually one of the ways that rubber works, which it's so funny how, um, to me, how science fiction in science fiction, you'll come up with all of these concepts or you'll see people talking about all these concepts, like, you know, adhering with static, uh, we've got these climbing gloves and they stick you to whatever surface you want using static charge. Uh, and say, okay, it basically just means that they're very sticky, right? Like, cause that's what's sticky. One of the things that's sticky is it's a it's this sort of chemical charge process and similarly you know you have uh discussions of elaborate far future spaceships that are made out of a single complicated molecule but that's one of the processes that's involved in creating like tire rubber uh is creating a very long molecular chain basically of the of the latexes um, Again, this is all like my understanding of chemistry that I don't actually practice. So I might be getting this wrong. And my apologies to all the chemical engineers out there <laughs> who are, you know, fuming at their computers right now. So, but, but I love that. I love that, um, something that sounds enormously cool can turn out to be very commonplace, uh, which just makes the commonplace stuff even cooler to my mind. Yeah, there's just two other sort of science details I want to mention. So at one point, uh, the characters are fighting robots who are in spaceships. And you mentioned that when the spaceships blow up, the explosions are green and blue because there's no oxygen in, in, mm -hmm. to make them red. I thought that was really interesting. And then um, at one point, Viv is in a spaceship and she can hear the other spaceships flying around. And she thinks, wait, there's no sound in space. But then it turns out that they're, the ship is, is creating the soundscape so that humans know where the enemy spaceships are even though there's no sound in space you know it's just translating the data into sound and i thought those were both interesting things that i have seen seldom or never um in other science fiction that i can think of oh thanks um the the sound in space one is a really old headcanon for me explaining star wars i'll be entirely honest with that <laughs> it, it showed up in a star wars rpg that i was running like 15 20 years ago that gets referenced a couple other times in the in the book but yeah i mean um it's very, this is sort of, and this is an aspect of storytelling, especially sort of fix-fic kind of storytelling that I find really interesting. It's easy to watch a movie and poke holes in its treatment of a particular sort of scientific concept or plot or whatever. And it's a lot harder and more interesting to ask yourself, wait, what must be true? Assume that this actually does work. What must be true about the universe for it to work? So in something like Star Wars, where you have sounds and spaceships are, seem to be making sound, uh, you got one of two questions. Either there is sound in space, which is weird. That supposes the existence of some kind of medium that the sounds could travel through and... Uh, hard to think what that would look like. And certainly if there was something that was thick enough for space to travel, you wouldn't be able to fly the Millennium Falcon through it probably. Mm. But under what circumstances might you need sound? Well, humans use sound a bunch to navigate. Um, it sounds lets us know what's going on in the room. You can hear a pin drop across a sufficiently quiet room. Um, even echoes, the echoes of your own voice can give you information about where the walls are in a particular space, right? So why would a future in which human decision-making about spatial relationships is important, like say that you still have fighter pilots in this particular future, uh, you'd need some way for, to tell humans about what's going on behind them. And you can put up a whole bunch of instrument panels, which will be incredibly confusing for the user, or you can just have a clear rendering of 
the soundscape or a sort of interpretation of the soundscape. People respond very well to something they hear coming up behind them. And that, you know, so that's my headcanon for why TIE fighters always make the same sound in the Star Wars universe. It's not that that's the sound that the TIE engines make. It's just a sound that everybody's decided means that's a TIE fighter. <laughs> and then you can track the TIE fighter if you have a sufficiently fast sensor suite. So that seems like a good opportunity to get in on, um, the, get in on the action a little bit in you Impressive Forever. You said there's a bunch of other things in the book that come out of your Star Wars RPG. Yeah, well, um, the, the the name of the spaceship, the name of Zanja's spaceship, the question is a sort of side reference to a game that I ran back in college, which um, we spent, you know, I decided that I wanted to run a uh, Star Wars campaign for a bunch of friends. We spent the requisite, I think it might have been a month doing pre-play sessions. You know, I'd sit down with everybody, ask them what their characters were. We'd talk about ways that they wanted the game to go, the kind of stuff that you actually have time for when you're in college. And we got to the first session, and my friend Dan was the guy who was playing the um, the space pilot. And we talked about his checkered backstory with the Empire, the reason that he was on the run, his ship its details. We'd created this sort of uh, Javert character who was hunting him around, who'd show up later in the story. All of that, great detail. And we, I have the you know, first few minutes of the first session, we're coming in for He's coming out of hyperspace. He's coming down for a landing to deliver some passengers uh, to an archaeological dig. And I have the um, uh, flight traffic control, the air traffic control. You know, uh, Hello, spaceship. Uh, identify yourself. Uh, what, what's your designation? And I turn to Dan. So what's your ship name? And Dan looks at me blank. He's like, oh, um, that's a very good question. Hmm. And I was like, okay, that's it. We're going with it. We're just... It's the good question from now on. So I didn't want to use that specific thing in the in the story, but I couldn't stop myself, especially given how kinetic and and kind of gamey Empress of Forever uh, turned out to be as I was writing it. I mean, is there anything else in the book that goes way back in your life, like decades to other games or? Well, I mean, uh, there's a lot of stuff. You know, you you can unpick. I'd be surprised anyway if there was an author out there who isn't uh, sliding a bunch of stuff about their life into their own books. Uh, sometimes you do it without even noticing it. So the, Viv um, mentions at some point she, she's comparing the pain that she's currently feeling to various other instances where she was in pain in the in the past. And there's a mention to her climbing upside down off of a bunk bed at camp, which is a thing that my sister did when we were both tiny kids, right? Um, and like fell and broke her arm in two places. And uh, they had to cart her off to the hospital. And we showed up at like two o'clock in the morning as they were setting her arm, all that kind of fun stuff. So, so things like that sneak in. How about I saw in your bio that you lived in China for a while? Has that mm -hmm. snuck into this book? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I read Journey to the West for the first time uh, when I was maybe about 10, or read a, an English rendering anyway of it. And then finally, uh, Tony Yu's University of Chicago translation. And that was one of many things that really sparked my interest in learning Chinese going to China. How, how did you come across? Like, that seems like sort of an unusual thing for a 10-year-old to read. <laughs> well, it was on my parents' bookshelf. Um, my folks were both um, world religion program graduates. And um, they had a whole bunch of really amazing books. But one day I found a very brief English rendering and retelling of a couple of key episodes from Journey to the West that said, uh, you know, monkey, a Chinese odyssey or something like that. And the tag on the back was cosmic kung fu on the scale of Star Wars. And if you've read Journey to the West, that's not really what <laughs> Journey to the West is. Um, it's uh, It's a wonderful, vaguely Buddhist adventure story about uh, magical disciples who are traveling for, uh, for of this one monk who are traveling from China to India to get scriptures. But that description stuck in my head. And in a way, you can probably trace Empress of Forever all the way back to that description. Just what would cosmic kung fu on the scale of Star Wars look like? What kind of story would that be? And, and just a desperate need to find it and tell it. Um, so anyway, uh, that plus a whole bunch of other threads led me to studying Chinese in college and then going over to China to teach. And I was there for a few years, if you had it all together. And, and I was in Southern Anhui province for a long time. 
And it, that was, I left an indelible imprint on my writing. Um, again, the kind of thing where it's hard to point to individual details that I'm pulling, but just the sense of how different things can be from one country to the next. Um, the sense of also scope of opportunity, the fact that, you know, some of the, the kids that I was teaching, their parents were tea farmers and they've grown up to be international traveling translators or working for the IMF or things like that, that, um, there's so much in the world. And since I, I don't know, I'd, I'd had intimations of that before I was living in China, but that really cemented my sense of how much I didn't understand. I mean, maybe this is just, this is just in my head, just knowing that you would have lived in China and the part where they go to refuge, there's this part describing what Hong is doing. And it says, he roams the village and beyonds, drawing maps and landscapes and charcoal, talking in tea houses with locals, playing board games and dice, studying plow construction, visiting the sick, teaching children, tumbling games, learning, always learning. I just imagine that that's what you were doing in China, or is that? Uh, that that's... <laughs> I'm not sure I was quite as constructive as Hong was while I was over there, but we all try, right? <laughs> um, no, I mean, Refuge is definitely, um, which is a sort of more rural planet that they crash land on at a certain point of the book and are, are stuck on for a while, uh, definitely informed by my memories of people that I met in Southern Anhui, especially in the Chinese countryside. Um, the, I don't know, the, the, the way the, the way the grass looks, the um, the sheer number of animals that were around, which is maybe a weird thing to notice. But um, I'd grown up in rural Tennessee, and so there were a lot of farms around, but I'd never seen so many animals in such a tight space. Lots of you know water buffalo and dogs running around everywhere and chickens and pigs. It, it was a, a living countryside. That's something that I tried to bring to refuge. I mean, in the book, when we're getting introduced to Vivian Liao, uh, we, we find out that one of the formative experiences in her life was her grandma's cultural revolution horror stories. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you would have heard people talk about in China? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's something that people try to keep close to the vest, at least in my experience. But when I got... <laughs> On the one hand, people try to keep it close to the vest, but on the other hand, it absolutely shapes their lives. So there was a uh, family that we got to know reasonably well while we were staying in Anhui who had come out to the countryside specifically because they'd been sent down during the Cultural Revolution. And they had some relics, basically, of grandfather's university days and some memories and stories but they'd been kicked out of where they were and moved here. Um, you know, a teacher of mine would tell stories about um, neighbors torturing each other, stringing each other up by their by their thumbs, and how you know, thirty years later, you still have to live with those same neighbors. You can't. You know, some people left, some people died, but for the most part, everybody's just trying to get by on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe for not, you can't forget that that ever happened, but maybe you can try to live through it or live in spite of it. Um, the, you know, professor, a teacher at the school where I taught was telling stories of his childhood where, um, the students attempted to storm the main school building at the time, which was at top of a hill uh, to destroy the library and a bunch of biological samples that had been collected and stored up there. And other students tried to stop them. So you had kids like throwing rocks at each other on this um, hill as they were trying to come up and, and burn the place down. And, you know, it's, so, so all of that history is right under there if you scrape it with a fingernail. And that's not unique to China, obviously, um, America has more than its share of blood. If you start looking past the most surface level historical narratives that most of us get, but there was some, there's a kind of vividness of like, oh shit. Yeah. They, at some point culture can break down at some point civility can break down and people will just come for each other. And that's definitely something that, uh, that Viv 
lives with or lives in the shadow of. I mean, she has these other memories, too, of touring a salt mine in Poland and seeing beds in Phnom Penh. Are that, mm-hmm. is, is that stuff you did? or how, Yeah, those are, those are things that I did. Um, so the salt mine was, when I was very young, um, my parents went on a road trip basically through Eastern Europe, staying on the couches of grad school buddies. This was not long after the Berlin Wall had fallen, maybe five years. So um, still a lot of these places were just opening up to West. Western tourism. It was really, really cool to see the salt mines. They left a, an indelible impression. and They've showed up in a few different things that I've written um, in, in this reference, of course, and then also in, uh, in Book Burners, which is a fantasy procedural series that I, I co-wrote um, on Serial Box. And yeah, in Phnom Penh, um, I saw those um, when I was traveling one spring festival. Um, there's a long vacation in February, basically, for Chinese New Year. Um, it's you know five, six weeks, and it's a great time if you happen to be teaching school in China and don't have to go and visit your family for the month uh, to go and see the world. So I, I was wandering around with a friend of mine, and we went to that prison, which was also weirdly a converted school, which... Um, gave me pretty powerful echoes when I went back to the school where I was teaching in Southern LA and just, yeah, seeing how not the outer limit of how bad it can get because Lord alone knows, but just seeing the wake of the kind of horrors people can put on each other. Well, it says really in the book, perspective. we're tortured for the crime of wearing glasses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it was sort of intellect- too intellectual? or Yeah, exactly. Intellectual and um, sort of decadent and Western. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's, one of the ver- it's one of the things that the Camarouge focused on. Um, but so then talking, yeah, so you said that you, you really liked Journey to the West. And I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about that there are a lot of really direct parallels between Journey to the West and Empress of Forever. How... Um, just talk about that process of how similar and different you wanted to make it. Well, I was really, I mean, I loved the form and structure of Journey to the West, and I loved the characters too. And hitting on the desire, the sort of notion of doing something very like that in science fiction, it, it felt, I don't know, it felt ideal. The, the sort of f- character structure of Journey to the West played with a lot of the things that interested me about um, science fiction and space opera at the time, including these questions of desire and these questions of character limit and transformation. Um, Journey to the West is the story is a, at its heart, a Buddhist story about people seeking scriptures, which they can then bring back to help people attain liberation faster. And it's also a story about a group of people trying to work together. Um, it's almost Pilgrim's progress E in that it's attempting uh, at least the, the, it claims that it's trying to show, uh, the sort of inner alchemy of one person going on a spiritual journey by separating that person out into a number of supernatural components who are then all relating to one another. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but like this particular character, uh, monkey, who's this very powerful, shape shifting, uh, rambunctious, super smart individual stands in for, in the poetry of the book, the kind of monkey of the intellect, which is, um, enormously powerful, but can also get you in a lot of trouble very quickly if you're not careful. And uh, Jubatia, the, um, the sort of pig disciple, is appetitive, and he represents the kind of grosser, hungrier pleasures, uh, all the pleasures of the flesh, which on the one hand, if you, know, if you don't um, figure out how to work with them, you'll starve away and die. But on the other hand, they can also keep you from advancing. But they're not quite as much of a threat to the forward motion as the intellect can be. Monkey can just run off to the other side of the world and totally abandon your quest. So uh, the sort of Journey of the West style and structure played really well with a lot of the things that I wanted to explore in this. And I just loved the story since I was a kid. So I wanted to play the changes on it a little bit. Um, For example... 
you know, Journey to the West, you have a character who is from a society that is very similar to the society of the intended reader of the text. Somebody who is leaving a China that a reader of Journey to the West in the dynastic period would have recognized. There's an emperor, there's a bureaucracy that works in a certain way, there are priests, that kind of thing. Um, and going out into a strange and magical space, um, a space where anything can turn into anything else that can be haunted by ancient monsters or where people can look to kidnap wandering monks and eat them to devour their life essence, which is, you know, not something that generally happens on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I liked the idea. That's one of the reasons that I was interested in exploring Viv's character, somebody who's from a social milieu that we'll recognize. It's not necessarily ours, but we kind of know some of the pressures that are forming her and we know where they're driving her. Um, thrown into a situation, you know, beyond her control. So in which the possibilities of her character can play out in a way when you're surrounding people with their own context, it's hard to see exactly what their character is because we're very good at, I don't know, creating compensation mechanisms to hide ourselves. But you throw somebody into an unfamiliar space and they'll you really start to see what choices they make when they're not bound by the consequences of their previous choices, when they sort of get a chance to make a fresh start. And so there are a lot of elements of the story that kind of play with that. I wanted that kind of appetitive, desire-bound character. And so Gray is is growing out of that, but of course, a very different character from Jubadia. Zanj, the sort of uh, warrior pirate queen individual in, um, in Empress of Forever, she is a very close um, character to Sun Wukong, to, to Monkey, the sort of arguably the protagonist of Journey to the West. Um, and that was also intentional. I wanted to make it impossible for anyone who knew the text to think that I was trying to get away with anything. So a very obvious hat tip in her visual design. You know, I could have uh, tried to obfuscate more, but I really wanted to make it clear, like, no, this is where it's coming from. Uh, and I know, so it's okay. Uh, well, to to whatever extent, people seem to have been really excited to see the parallel so far, which is very gratifying. Yeah, well, we we talked about how this is a this book has been sort of a departure from your previous series. Um, what kind of response have you been getting from from your longtime readers? For the most part, it's been a really positive response. I, I think people like seeing something new. They like the tenor and tone. They like that it's fun. Um, the craft sequence, in, in a way, this also allowed me to do a whole different kind of pace than the craft sequence. Most of the craft sequence books are very much about complex embedded problems. It's really hard to see a solution to them. Um, it, you know, you have, well, Last for Snow, for example, is a, is a good case in point where you have uh, like developer interests and you have uh, settled interests fighting over, um, you know, you have sort of poor people who live in a place fighting over the sort of what the future of a particular area is going to look like. So it's basically a, a massive redistricting fight. And eventually it turns into a sort of horrific echo of fantasy adventure. There are people riding around on dragons, but, you know, basically what's happening is the cops are charging the the barricade that these people have set up to try to protect their homes. Um, but when that happens, it's um, it's crushing. And leading up to that, there's this long process of the tension ratcheting, um, ratcheting up. And that's true throughout the craft sequence. So both for me and I think for a lot of readers, this was a good opportunity to move fast, break things, you know, again, the sort of tech parallel there, I guess, uh, to jump around the galaxy and frankly, to get all the way done with a series in one volume. Part of the joy of writing this book was to, I don't think it, it, it totally precludes any possibility for sequel, but I wanted to write something that was basically a five season science fiction story in a single book so that I could just publish that book, get it done. People could read it, feel satisfied, and then, then walk away with a smile on their face. Well, right. one thing I heard you say about the the craft sequence that I thought was interesting is you said that, yeah, that it, it really came out of your feelings after the 2008 financial crisis of just how could these things that don't exist in physical reality have 
ravaged the real world so much. And then that kind of takes fantasy form with gods and wizards and all the stuff you mentioned. And this, this one, it seems like kind of, um, you know, comes out of this, like what's wrong on the internet right now, sort of sentiments we mentioned. Yeah, I think so. That's, that's a really good way to put it. Um, it's, I, I started writing it in December of 2016 um, and I, I'd, I'd done a lot of outlining and a lot of thinking about it before then, but I think there's a kind of urgency that the book has, um, on a line by line level that's inseparable from some of the urgency that I was feeling at that time. And honestly, that I'm still feeling this sense of, wait, things seem to be going very quickly and very weirdly. And, um, that the world has, so much promise, but also seems to be darkening. And I think that's connected in a lot of ways to the internet and to the question of sort of what's wrong on the internet. Um, it's not only about the internet, but, uh, and maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's something that we all got wrong about the internet or that I was getting wrong about the internet back in the nineties, the sense that it was ever going to be anything other than a reflection of the culture in which it's enmeshed. Um, at the beginning, since there were so few people on it, it felt like it could be its own thing, but now it is the same thing as the whole rest of society, or it's an outgrowth of society. And then that's one of the challenges that Empress engages with, or tries to again and again, even with through all the planet smashing and uh, post-human kung fu battles and all of that, this question of sort of who are we, what are we, and what kind of world are we trying to make? Let's try to be really honest about that. Well, right. Like there's this paragraph in the book. Um, you say she had lost cousins and coworkers to the last round of hysteria back home, people she'd known and even almost trusted who refused to see what was coming until it was too late. After the dust cleared, after things bottomed out, a few repented, most slept on and refused to talk about what they'd been, what they'd become. So things got worse. And I felt like out of... And any paragraph in the book, I felt like that one was speaking directly to the reader about things outside the text. Is that a fair statement, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, it was an attempt in, again, like 2016, early 2017 to uh, ask, well, what's somebody who's talking, what somebody who's looking back on the next 20 years going to have to say about it? And it was informed by conversations with people who had looked back on moments of national convulsion and insanity in their own countries. Right. But so are you uh, pretty pessimistic at the moment or guardedly pessimistic? <laughs> I don't know. Um, the answer is probably the answer is no, not now. Uh, I think I was pretty bleak in early 2017, let's say. But I think people are waking up and coming together. And that I was writing this book as I was seeing that start to happen, that um, people are figuring out that, no, you actually do need to call your representatives and congresspeople, that it is okay to run for office, that trying to change the conditions of your culture. That's not just something that uh, a certain sort of person does. It's something that we all should be doing every day. Um, that, uh, that the world can change and there is still time. All right. So we're running kind of short on time. I did, this is kind of random, but in one of the, I watched your interview on the Khan Academy and you just oh, mentioned yeah. in passing that you took a fantasy class in college with a Someone you described as an established fantasy author. I was just wondering if you could talk about that. Oh, yeah. Um, this was so in college, I had the great fortune of taking a couple classes from John Crowley and uh, the author of Little Big, among many, many other works. And it was especially fortunate because I did not know a great deal about him before I took the class. I applied to it, I sent the best work that I possibly had in. And so I was able to get a, and, and I was lucky enough to get in. So I had a whole semester of uh, responding to students' stories, having great conversations with my professor, writing stuff, getting really on point critiques about it, and just getting more and more serious about writing before I went home over um, Christmas break, sat down and read Little Big, and walked away just 
totally overwhelmed and shaken by the sheer awesomeness of artistic accomplishment that it represents. I, I, I went back and had another class with him and it took me like, weeks to get over feeling like I can't possibly talk to this guy. The book is too good. He's, he is too good. How could I ever even remotely measure up? Um, but he was always, has always been a really welcoming and encouraging teacher. And, um, I still love his work, obviously. Yeah. He's amazing. And that's an amazing opportunity to it have really as a was. student because so often people, um, you know, who want to write fantasy and science fiction in college are sort of given the, oh, it's not real literature, don't write that, you know, yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's true. I, I feel like that might be changing just because the tenor of MFA programs and uh, of what we think of as literature with capital L and with, with quotes has changed a lot in the last 10, 15 years. But I know so many people who have horror stories about trying to write a piece of fantasy or a piece of science fiction in a creative writing class and not uh, being able to get anywhere with it or being derided by their fellow students or let alone their teacher. Now, I think there is a, um, there is a flip side to that whole conversation where if you're trying to workshop a piece of science fiction or fantasy with people who aren't science fiction or fantasy readers, you'll spend a lot of time defending the core constituent elements of the genre to your against your um, fellow classmates, you'll spend a lot more time doing that than you will actually getting good crit and uh, being able to incorporate that back into your draft. Right. So uh, what do I mean by that exactly? Like if say that you're taking a murder mystery story into a literature class and nobody in the literature class is a big fan of murder mysteries. They just don't know how things work. Uh, and so you go around the circle and everyone's sitting there thinking, well, I mean, I just, I don't understand. You know, your detective doesn't really have anything to do with this person who's been murdered. Wouldn't it be more interesting mm -hmm. if it was a, you know, uh, somebody that they knew very well? You're like, no, this is a, this is a series detective story. The detective like encounters, you know, a new mystery and then has to solve it. Well, I mean, okay, but I, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that the clues sort of structure, this feels a little bit contrived, right? Every chapter we learn one new thing and maybe it, you're focusing so much on the logical structure here is when I really would love to see more of the emotion in the story. And so, you know, and then, and then you're left having to defend like the existence of clues or the <laughs> existence of a detective or, um, you know, why in a cozy mystery, no, you know, the, the cat isn't going to die or something like that, um, rather than actually having people help make you make the book the book that it needs to be. So if you're trying just to raw work on technique and most of the people in your um, writing class aren't themselves writers in the genre that you're trying to focus on, maybe there's something to be said for um, trying to write a straight literary story or what you think of as a straight literary story and seeing what feedback they give to that. I think it's... Uh, I certainly learned a lot taking a, uh, also from John Crowley, but it was a straight fiction class, so not genre. And he came to me before uh, the class started. This was that second semester that I mentioned and said, why don't you just really try to write just literary fiction this time as an exercise? And it was the best exercise that he possibly could have given me. Uh, I learned so much about prose style. I learned so much about characterization and dialogue. And I also honestly learned so much about my own prejudices about what a story could possibly be. I grew in some ways a lot more in that class than I did in the class that was strictly about getting better as a fantasy writer. Yeah, that's interesting. Is uh, is John Crowley still teaching? Is that at Yale that you took that? That was at Yale, yeah. Um, he, I think, retired from teaching a year or maybe two years ago. I, I lost track, but um, it was he, he was a great instructor. Do you know if there's anyone still there who was friendly to fantasy and science fiction? I honestly don't know. It'd be good to go back and look. It'd be a shame if they'd um, let that drop because it was such a wonderful part of the English department. Yeah. All right. So I also just wanted to give you a chance. You mentioned Serial Box earlier. And one thing you've really been moving into is collaborating with other authors. You're on Wild Cards, Serial Box, and you just did this 
novel with um, El Matar. Uh, this is how you lose the time word. Could you just talk about what was that like going from someone who was writing these books on your own to doing all these collaborative projects? Sure. Well, I mean, I mentioned earlier that I have a background in role-playing games and in gaming. And in a way, uh, that that's always had a collaborative element to it, right? You're telling the story with and against other um, storytellers, even though you're telling it live. Um, and some of the first long-form fiction that um, I did in genre was sort of Usenet-based or forum role-playing, where you'd you know, be writing this 2,000-word story about what your character was doing as the team or the Starfleet starship or whatever was going about its mission. So I, I had a, have an affinity for collaborative writing from way back. And it feels so much fun. I'd never want to give up writing solo altogether because there's a kind of honest confrontation with yourself and with the page that I think is very important. It, it feels like uh, practice it feel in, in, in a sort of both in a meditative way and in a kind of you practice your instrument sort of way. You're working your scales. You're trying to get better at the sort of sentiment of the, of the violin. But when you're writing with someone else, it feels a lot like you're in a band, like you're jamming. You can bounce off them. You can throw out pitches and you see instantly if somebody's excited by them, which is always, for me, the killer of uh, writing long form, especially on your own. You can be 150 pages into a book that nobody else has read and that nobody but you will read until you're finished with it. And you're not sure if you're doing it right. Um, and eventually you've learned that you will do it at least right enough to be fixed. But still, every time I'm writing a book, about halfway mark, two thirds mark, there's this moment of like, whoa, why did I decide to do any of this? Nobody's, who's going to ever be excited about this thing? That's just sort of your own head messing with you. But when you're working with someone, whether it's a, a sort of, multiple um, authors all writing different pieces of the same narrative structure, like we did in Book Burners with um, Margaret Dunlap and Brian Francis Slattery and uh, Merle Lafferty and Andrea Phillips, or um, where, and this is how you lose the time war, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, where Amal Matar and I sat down and each took one character in a narrative and kind of wrote those characters at each other, both sort of narrative sections where the characters are sort of wandering around and interacting with the world, and then also the letters that the characters are sending to one another, teasing each other and taunting initially, and then slowly growing more uh, uh, emotionally involved. So in both of those cases, you're just bouncing off someone else. You're not alone in the creative process. And that's just a ton of fun. So it's been pretty much a smooth transition, you'd say, or have there been any challenges or any sort of ego that you had to overcome in yourself or anything like that? I'd say it's been pretty smooth. All along the way, I've just found myself so excited to get a chance to learn from other people, to get a chance to measure myself against them, uh, to get a chance to kind of challenge myself, especially working with Amal as we started off um, This Is How You Lose the Time War. We were both so invested in we both loved each other's work, and we knew that our work was different. So we had the structure that would allow us each uh, sort of untrammeled voice so that I wouldn't be going through and trying to control Amal's voice in a way that might, you know, horror of horrors, make it sound less like Amal. And so that Amal wouldn't be going through and trying to uh, control my voice too much. We'd both be ourselves just in the story. But what we found out was as we were writing further and further into the draft, I'd be... Um, encouraged by, challenged by, excited by Amal's um, more poetic sentence structure. And I'd be like, oh man, maybe there's something I can do with that. Or with the um, depth of emotion that she brings to scenes. And okay, how can I incorporate a, a bit of that? And then she'd be stealing or, or playing off of world building tricks that I'd be using. Or um, I, I really, I think there's a style of um, sort of in line world, uh, kind of in line plot advancement where a lot of things will happen in the space of a sentence or a paragraph rather than having to individually narrate them beat for beat. I, I think that she took and ran with for her own projects. Then, of course, the letters were building off of one another. So we both got to 
test each other and, and race against each other in a way that was really cool. Yeah, it sounds great. Now, it seems to be getting a really positive reception. I was just looking over your recent Twitter feed, and there were just so many things about this is how you lose the time war and positive uh, responses to it and stuff. Yeah, it's been really gratifying. I mean, we did this sort of for ourselves. We were really excited by the project and to get to work on something together. And um, we just really hoped that other people would get some of the joy that we got out of it. And that seems to be the case. Right. So what are you working on next? Do you have anything else coming out? Oh, man. Um, yes. What can I talk about? Not a lot. Um, yeah, there are a lot of secrets. <laughs> Too many secrets in this industry. Um, what am I working on that I can talk about? There's going to eventually be more craft sequence and I've written a sizable chunk of it and then need to work on something more. Um, I'm a sizable way into a new book that I can't say anything else about at the time. Uh, there's a interactive project that might be showing up later this year that I also can't talk about anymore, but will be really exciting when it shows up. And Amal and I, I think I can say this, are engaged in trying to adapt This Is How You Lose the Time War for television, which is really fun and also a, a bit of a, a mind-melting process. <laughs> See, when I, I met you a couple of years ago and you were really excited at that time about the sort of road trip novel you were working on. Is that... Is yeah, that's still, still in oh, absolutely. Well, it's not still in progress. I wrote a version of it back in 2014, 2015, and it was good then, but I've also, I think, grown a lot as an artist since then. And also the, the country that I'm writing about has changed a bit. So I'm trying to go back into it on a very close level and, and rework it. And that's something that's uh, on my mind a lot these days. Yeah, well, it sounded really cool when you were describing it, so I hope to see that sometime. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, watch the skies. <laughs> All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Max Gladstone about its new novel, Empress of Forever. So, Max, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great. Thank you so much. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Max Gladstone for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Bruce Rankin, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Carl Watson, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.